Bless the Lord's name. We ask this morning in celebration of that excellent God and His Son and Holy Spirit that we would turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of John, the fifth chapter, verses 31 through 47. That's the book of John, the fifth chapter, verses 31 through 47. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge by saying, Our God is excellent. Our God is excellent. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word? John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. And the word of God says this. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he is bore witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. But I said these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have a word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom as he is sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not see the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote me. For if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? May the Lord have a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. In our passage this morning, Jesus speaks of several witnesses who bear testimony concerning him. This theme, this trial motif here, shows that Jesus is being the one who is leading us to understand that he's not the one who's being condemned. He's not the one that's being put on trial in front of the world. But the world was being condemned and the world was being put on trial to demonstrate the innocence of Jesus and the great guilt of the world. So Jesus is acting here as God's district attorney. And he's here to prosecute the case 
And he proceeds by parading a multitude of witnesses who come to bear the truth about Jesus. The truth and the testimony that Jesus is the true Messiah. You see it here in his opening statement. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What's the claim here? Jesus is claiming exactly what is shown in the Old Testament when the Old Testament requires multiple witnesses. Deuteronomy 17 and 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Numbers 35 and 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no one or no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Deuteronomy 19 and 15. A single witness will not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So we see here that the word of Jesus, oh my goodness, brings even more clarity to this. When he says, I alone, he is representing here the inclusion of the pronoun. Ego, remember, ego, emi means I am that I am. And here he says just ego because it's translated bearing witness and he wants to make it emphatic. And we need to put a pin in that for just a moment because you have to recognize that as we've been going through this book, especially in last week's our time together, we see that the son continually says that he can do nothing by himself. In fact, he said, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. We recognize he's saying here that the validation comes from the fact that it is true. And there's no mistake here. He's not just saying that it's legally true, but that it's spiritually and substantially true. And the burden of evidence to support his tremendous claim does not just depend on his self-testimony. He says that if I alone testify about myself, my word is not true. But see, you have to understand that Jesus doesn't stand alone. He's already said in the strongest terms last week all the way from 16 to 30, that he says and he does everything that the Father tells him to do, that his existence is a very a reflection of perfect obedience to God. When he says that there is another that bears witness about me, you have to understand what that word another means. Allah in the classical Greek means one in addition to the one already mentioned. And the one who is in addition to the one who is already mentioned are of the same sort and of the same substance. It's different from heteros, that means just two. So we recognize here that when he says that I alone, if I was alone, and if I testified concerning myself, my witness would not be true, but my Father God also testified with me because God and I are one. Amen. He's claiming that the Father's witness is not external to himself. He's claiming before his opponent 
that he is God and God the Father and he are one. 32b, when he says in chapter 5, 32b, I know that the testimony that he, personal pronoun refers to God, that he bears about me is true. Here's Jesus showing his incredible inward obedience to God. He is the one who speaks what he knows, and he does whatever has been disclosed to him by God. John 3, 11 and 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you everything? Jesus recognizes totally what he's speaking, where he's going, what the Father has commanded him to say. John 12, 49 50. The Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. You see here, we see the first witness, the first of four witnesses that's in this passage. First, we see God the Father testify to Jesus. Then we see John the Baptist testify to Jesus. Then we see the Word of God testify to Jesus. And then we see Moses testify to Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Father, we just love and praise you. May the words of my mouth and very meditation of my heart. Be acceptable in your sight, for you are my Lord and my Redeemer. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. In all God's truth and say Amen. As God the Father bears witness against an unbelieving world about Jesus, let's look at that further testimony that he gives. And we need to skip down here to John chapter 5, picking back up at 36 through 38 to see the Father's testimony about his son. John 5, 36 through 38. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the work that the Father has given me to accomplish the very work that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Don't get me wrong. The testimony of John the Baptist before our unbelieving watching word, one that describes his deity, his mission, is a great testimony, and we're going to return to that. But the testimony that is greater than John, that Jesus is speaking of, is this witness that comes from his father. He says from the start, the works which the Father has given me to finish, he's in the process of of completing. He's in the process of testifying to his own deity by the works that he's performing. These works include all of the ministries of Jesus Christ. The signs that show his work on the cross is true. The redemption that is achieved on that work of the cross. That exhortation of the Lamb the one that is greater than all, that takes away the sins of the world, that is terminated on the cross. In John's Gospel, we see these works are demonstrated over and over again, even to the surprise of Nicodemus.
back in chapter 3 of John, when Nicodemus said in 3-2, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. Amen. We see the father and son relationship strengthening all through chapter 5, starting at 19 and going to 30, which we dealt with last week. And we're reminded by Jesus' own words that he does nothing more or nothing less than the father gives him to do. And he does it simultaneously with the work of the father. The witness of the Father about the work of Jesus here are integrated. But Jesus insists that the Father himself testify concerning him. Now, we don't hear a clear reference here or a clear scripture that lifts this up after this statement is made. We will see a clear, a clear evidence in verse 39 when Jesus is comparing himself to the very scriptures. But I think here that he's referring more to the fact of the voice that confirms his ministry that comes from heaven and baptism. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Matthew, as you were Mark chapter 1, 9 through 11. Mark chapter 1, 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And he came up out of the water, and watch this, and he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit, capital S, descended upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. You see this Trinitarian testimony right here. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in one passage showing that everything affirms that Jesus is who he says he is. And we recognize that the baptism of Jesus is not repeated in the fourth gospel. But we also know that those who would come to read John would recognize because of their understanding of the rest of the New Testament that John could allude to this without repeating or narrating it himself. We recognize that this goes much farther to witness a great testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. And then comes what I think is a damning indictment that comes in three charges against the Jewish leadership. Look at what it says here. You have never heard his voice. He's referring to the fact that Jesus says that unlike Moses who heard God's voice in Exodus 33 and 11. They have not heard the voice of God. But when Jesus speaks, he speaks the word of God. And if you don't hear Jesus, you won't hear God. Secondly, there's another charge that is added. You have never seen his form. God does not have a body, he is a spirit. Unlike Jacob, who saw the form of God. We recognize here. You saw it in what? In that angel that he was wrestling with, right? Now, Jesus is saying, because you do not see the manifestation and the substance and the statue of God, when you look at me, you are not really true Israel. And then the third charge. His word does not dwell in you. Unlike Joshua, Joshua 1, 8 through 9, or unlike the Psalms in Psalm 119 and 11, 
The Psalms 19 and 11 speak to the fact that God's word is put hidden in their hearts. That they meditate on God's word. That they learn not to sin against God because of God's word. And their understanding of God's word offers them a divine blessing. But since these in the Jewish leadership, Jesus is saying, His word does not dwell in you, then His blessing or the experience of His blessing. Do not abide in you not. This is a triple indictment against the fact that they don't know Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Look how the author of Hebrews speaks of Jesus. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, yeah. whom he appointed the heir of all things, though whom also he created the world. He is, this is speaking of Jesus, for now referred to Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, that was making purification for us on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majestic on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. That means the Word of God in flesh. Jesus is the one who describes who God is. Jesus is the fulfillment of the antecedent revelation of God. Failure to believe in Jesus is therefore failure to believe in God Failure to see the true revelation of Jesus, not being able to absorb it, not being able to understand it, not being willing to obey it, shows that those who claim to follow God don't follow God. The last clause you see in verse 38, Jesus said, For you do not believe the one he sent. The conjunction for here is really introducing conclusive evidence of this triple indictment. He's showing that it is their unbelief that he's indicting them, and they are now being condemned because of their unbelief. Next, we see John the Baptist as he comes to bear witness against a wicked world. Look at verses 33 to 35. You sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I received is from me, but I said these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his life. So we're looking for testimony that will come and bear up the testimony of God the Father. So we have a second witness here. John the Baptist, who came into the world to bear witness to the true life. He came to that delegation back in Jerusalem in chapter 1 of John, verses 19 through 28. He publicly identified Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. In verses 29 and 34, look at John, first chapter, 29 and 34. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man 
who went before me. Because he was before me. John is remembering that he has six months from the birth of Jesus. He's remembering that the fact that he lived in his mother Elizabeth's womb when she was speaking to her cousin Mary. He goes on to say, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven. Now he's speaking of his baptism, right? I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him. But he sent me, but he who sent me to baptize the water said to me, On whom you see, the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I bore witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. But remember all those testament times, don't forget the Holy Spirit was acting and then would descend on who the Lord was sending to, but it did not remain. It just descended on them for them to do the work of the Lord. And then it would go back. But he said, God told John, who you see the Spirit descend upon and stay, remain, then you will know that that is the Son of God. If you and I have truly received Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit has descended upon us as well and remained to guide us, to bring us back to all truth, to speak a word to us in time of trouble, to give us direction. Jesus continues to say, He's only able to do everything that the Father gives Him to do and to say everything that the Father gives Him. He looks at the fact that this other is really his father who steps upon about him. And really, how could the witness of John the Baptist add anything to that? But look what Jesus said. He mentions the testimony of John the Baptist not for his sake, but for the sake of his hearers that they might be saved. You see, people are saved by believing in Jesus. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing the words of Christ. John the Baptist was a witness that helped them believe in who Jesus was. He was, don't miss this because this is so beautiful. John the Baptist was not the true light. What does he say in John 1 and 8? He said, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. It's beautiful how Jesus says this in this passage when he said, John the Baptist was a lamp that burned and gave light. He was not the light of life, which is Jesus. The word for light here is false, and it means with the definite article the light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. But the word that's used for John the Baptist here as a light bearer, a lamp, is luknos, which means he was a light that God sent to lead others to the light that they might know Jesus and they might know salvation. So John the Baptist was anointed and appointed by God to become a lamp leading others to the light which is Christ Jesus. He burned. He gave life. But he came from a pure source which was Jesus Christ himself. I mean look at his ministry. It says right here that even those uh, who were involved in the time enjoyed being in his life for a moment. He was the one that came announcing 
the coming one that was greater than him. He was the one by his insistence telling people that he's trying to prepare the way for the one that is coming and make the path straight. He's the one that kept promising that there's the dawning of a new kingdom. He's the one that kept saying that there's divine salvation and a pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which is yet to come when they met the light. And he did it all with threats of judgment and persecution because he enjoyed pleasing God. And his witness would prove to be extraordinarily fruitful. Even though only a few chose to enjoy his life for a time. But remember something. The integrity of our commitment to God is never greater than the depth of our beliefs in God. God recognized that even the best of men are man at best. So it does not pay to put all your stock in man, but to put all your stock in Christ. Look at John 2. 23-25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus did not rely on the testimony of men but on the testimony of his holy word. Now we see that the word comes to the witness hand to testify against an unbelieving world about Jesus. Look at verses 39 through 44 of chapter 5 of John. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here we see a tragic failure. A tragic failure to grasp the truth of God. This is clearly seen in their approach to Scripture. And think about it. It was not that they were negligent in the studying of the scriptures, but they were negligent in their understanding of the necessity of the scriptures. Jesus himself acknowledged it right here in the text. You diligently study the scriptures. And this comes across first as an imperative, as a command, as a vital request. But when you look at it in its context, it's more of an indicative, it's more of an objective statement. He's telling these Jewish leaders, you diligently study the scriptures. You have your own interpretation, your own understanding, probably led by the oral Torah. You know, they had these collection of oral sayings that they held in, in the same esteem as they did the scriptures. In fact, Rabbi Fidel once said, the more you study the law, the more life you have. And the more a man gains of himself through the words of the law, he is gaining more life in the world to come. But Jesus is saying then, listen to me, there is not as much intrinsically life-giving about the study of the scriptures if that same person fails to discern the true content and purpose of those scriptures. 
And then he doubles down. He says, don't miss the point I'm making here. These scriptures testify about me. But you, you think you can read them and they give you life and life is standing right in front of you and you refuse the government that you could have life. You see the option we're on here? Look at John 1.45. Philip found Nathaniel said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. Look at John 20 and 9. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. You see here, all through scripture is this, or all through John, all through all scripture, is this hermeneutical key. It ties together prophecy and type and relatory events that are important from the Old Testament that have to be pieced together with the New Testament. Jesus makes similar points all through the Gospels. He tells us in Matthew 11 13 that he came to fulfill the law. He tells us that he understands the sinfulness of the human race and that such life-giving law was not possible. Jesus Christ is the one to whom the Father has granted the right to have life in himself and to impart that life into us. Jesus Christ as the prologue tells us in John, John 1, 4, paraphrase here, he is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes in him. The scriptures there, when the scriptures are rightly understood and the scriptures are rightly interpreted, the scriptures rightly point to Jesus himself. You can't refuse Jesus and expect to ever come to life. There is no inter uh, independent living or independent living that is away from Christ or without Christ or devoid of Christ. There's really no true understanding in Scripture when you don't see its central meaning in Christ Jesus. We have a world that continues to say that they are certain. But most times, they're just subversive in the way and the pattern of life that are described in Scripture. You can't search and be deaf to the Word of God. Luke 24, 27 And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all, not some, in the God. Now remember, when he's doing it, he's walking with them on their man's road and he's speaking of the Old Testament, right? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which speaks as a summary of the Old Testament, he interprets them in all scriptures the things concerning what? Himself. Jesus already said that he does not accept human glory, praise for man. The works he does in Luther's sign testify to who he is and they manifest his glory. We offer praise. We offer adulation to him who is worthy. Because it is what our heart calls us to do. And what we should do as believing Christians. But his glory is his glory. It reinforces itself, it manifests itself, it shows itself to be true in all that he does. When he speaks here of the love of God 
not being in them. He is saying that these people love darkness rather than light. They have a single-eyed vision to live a life that does not please God but pleases themselves. And Jesus is contrasting that with those who have a sincere love for God. He goes on in verse 23, chapter 5. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. He's saying that he's more than just an emissary of his Father. That he shows his obedience and his subordination to his Father. But yet his opponents want to accept him because they have their own idea of who his Messiah should look like and how they should act. But if they had truly loved God the Father, they would not have failed to love God the Son. 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has commanded us. 1 John 5 and 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You know, the chief punishment of the liar is not so much that they don't believe, but their inability to believe. They did not the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if they deny the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, they have no Messiah. And everybody that they follow is going to be a false Messiah. That's why Jesus said, when someone else comes in his own name, you're going to accept them. That person's going to meet your requirements because your requirements are built on what your will is, what your desire is. And accept, accepting the one that comes from the true and living God. He's not talking about a particular charlatan, but he's talking about, and what did Jesus say that, you know, you think this would have gotten crucified? When he speaks in John chapter 10, all who came before me are thieves and liars. I am the true shepherd. The others bring death, yet I bring life. You see, his opponents were willing to accept the messianic claims of the others because they were heavily dependent on accepting praise from one another. They made no effort to obtain the praise that comes only from the true and living God. They want praise from those who begging them with slavery. They won't pray, they want to praise those who have pursued great reputation for themselves. They want to praise those that bring them a gospel that's attuned to how they're already living. That's where they want to give their glory. But he says, if you give glory to the true living God, you would never be able to believe those others. Romans 2.29, Paul is saying, a true Jew is one circumcised in the heart. He is one who prays is not for man, but for God. Lastly, before the case is closed, the last one to take the stand is Moses. And we see here, chapter 5, verses 45 through 47. Listen to the words of Jesus. Do not faint that I will accuse you. Take this back for a moment and think about chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, and what does Jesus mean? Yeah, verses uh, 16 through 20, when Jesus tells them that I came to save and not to bring judgment. And then he says, the one that don't believe that I am 
the very Son of God, are to us already. Tie that in to what he's saying here. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. But there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is an incredible indictment. Not unlike when he talks to them in John 8 and 58, and he tells them before Abraham was, I am. And if you if Abraham was your father, then you would believe me. Here he said, if you believe the words of Moses, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, you would have to believe me. Romans 2, 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the Lord and boast in God, he said, there's total evidence here. All through the ministry of Moses, that I am who I say I am. Romans 2 and 12. For all who are saying without the law will also perish without the law. And all who are saying under the law will be judged by the law. Moses stands up with this outrageous accusation. At the end here, when he says, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I think there are two important verses here. The first one is probably in Deuteronomy 18:15 that says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. But I think the other passage is probably in the 10th chapter of Luke where you will see the rich man and Lazarus. And you remember the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is holding the poor man who has died in his home, and the rich man is in hell, and he can see over there, but there's a chasm that neither one can cross. The rich man is asked, asking, Would you please have him bring water and drop it on my tongue? He's in the bosom of Abraham. Drop it on my tongue. He says, no, because before you were in a good place, and now you're in a bad place, and he was in a bad place, and now he's in a good place. So he gives up on that idea. He says, well, at least send somebody back to talk to my brothers that they won't end up in this same hell I'm in. And what does Abraham say? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Yes. And they need to believe. He said, they have the word of God. They need to believe his writing. He said, no, they will believe if somebody comes back from the dead. He said, no. If they don't believe the word of God, they will not believe that someone has risen from the dead. Amen. He's telling you the same thing here. If your faith is not in this world, and in only what you see, faith has to be a faith that does not necessarily have sight, but an inward sight, an inward belief, belief an internal understanding that is true. That if we can't believe every jot and tittle that is in this book, we won't believe that anyone has ever risen from the dead. 
If we can't believe that anyone has ever risen from the dead, how do we believe that we're going to get Jesus is God. The exact imprint. The very nature. He holds every one of our futures in his hand. He is to be exalted and lifted up. He's to be embraced and admired by because of a life that was lived sinlessly, because of obedience that drove him to the cross to take on the punishment that was meant for you and I. He became saying who never said that we would make become the righteousness of God. We have a book that is a complete testimony to the reality and the results of a life well lived and a, and a life that is eternal, that's everlasting, a life that one day we too will adopt. But it begins in us accepting the testimony about Jesus Christ. He who is, he who was, and he who is to come. Let us pray. Dear Father, we just love and praise you. We thank you so much for your gift of your son, Jesus Christ, the gift that keeps on giving. We ask you to compel us and Lord. Confirm in our hearts. Convict us in our beliefs that there's only one way, and that way is through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let us recognize that He's already paid the price, He's already bought our redemption. His blood cleanses us. So, Lord, let let us exchange the life of our life and let us diligently live for Him. Let us do this in every day and everything we do in our loving, in our work, in our giving, in every aspect of our life. Let us show that Jesus Christ is King. Let us recognize that. There is total protection in the center of his will, regardless of what we see, regardless of how the outcome uh, seems to be moving forward. We don't know how it's going to work out. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know who holds tomorrow. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and those who are called to Him. We are protected because we belong to you. So, Lord, uh, build us up and strengthen us on every lean side. Let us enjoy every moment with one another in our families and our extended families. Let us recognize that there is nothing more important than this good church. Let us know that the gate prevails. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all in all of God's children's faith. Amen. Amen.